A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. classic horror films, and other pulp fiction. Today we take a look at the science fiction television show Severance. Severance is a look at a not-too-distant future where technology gives us the opportunity to divide our work lives from our home lives. But with that division comes a price, and occasional waffles. <laughs> with me, as always, is Dr. Anthony Ladon. But one of the dogs is finishing up her period. Why? Why would I want to know that? Well, I mean, I you just were put like, yourself right. in my shoes for a minute. <laughs> well, I think it was, you were concerned that the dogs were like I was letting them kind of be around, and I'm like, well, she's sort of in a in a delicate situation, so I kind of like to keep her at ease. <laughs> so you want me to know that you might have to comfort your dog at some point during this podcast, or at least get a sponge. I would imagine that you'd have the sponge handy already. Already starting off, right? We already got a dog barking. Like if it were me, I'd have a pen, a paper, a microphone, and I'd have my dog's menstrual sponge at the ready. (laughs) Well, so (laughs) I love the idea of a menstrual sponge. Um, But we have her in a diaper. With a pad. You're using this dog for breeding? No. The reason for this is because this is the way God made dogs. <laughs> so first off, I did not create this scenario. I'm merely, I just, I'm, I'm merely a, a, a casual witness. Uh, but you you're don't want to. You're not a casual witness. You're the well, one sponging the dog's vagina. I am not sponging the dog's vagina, to be clear. I, I I put a pad on, I, I, I Velcro it in, in place, and uh, I hope it went in correctly. Nevertheless, um, you're an active participant. I, in this. Sure. Okay. Um, I, but yeah, so we don't, we don't want to um, have her fixed until after her heat cycle. Apparently that's better for their, their growth and development here. Uh, shall we talk about severance? I was thinking we should talk about severance instead of what we're talking about now. Really, anything. I'd be happy to talk <laughs> about anything else. Um, let's. I think 
that for Severance, we ought to do a bit of non-spoiler material and then alert folks that we are going to get into spoiler material. Yeah? Sure. Agreed? We have quorum. Should we give trigger warnings to when we're going to talk about dogs' menstrual cycles? Because <laughs> um, I feel like that ship has already sailed. Yeah, because especially if that if you know opening with it, it makes it a little hard to sort of retcon. I guess maybe we could just put something in the. You could record a disclaimer. Or, mm-hmm. Okay. Is there is there something more than explicit we can put on <laughs> this particular episode? Uh, all right. So I want to talk about severance. And I feel like you're almost the perfect person to comment on this show because this show is so deeply rooted in office life. And you've spent the majority of your adult life in and around offices, right? I'm an office boy. Yeah, you're office boy. I don't feel like a lot of that makes it into your stand-up material. Uh Uh-uh. It's almost as if you have a bifurcated life. You've got your office persona, and then you've got your stage persona. Yeah, almost as if I don't have any recollection of one versus the other. That's right. Um, that's right. Yeah, I, it's it's funny because like people you work with are constantly like, "Oh, you must get so much material from this place." Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard you tell an office joke. Uh uh-uh. uh I look at them and I'm like, "What about this environment is amusing?" You just you think it's too boring to talk about? Yeah, I'm like, like, what am I gonna, dude? I'm gonna just, I'm gonna, I'm, no, you, you can't wait to hear my next ten minutes on pivot tables. Okay, let's let's talk about the premise of the show. The premise of the show, I think, is an expansion or a caricature of the idea that most folks who work in an office develop something of an office persona that seems to be some somewhat related to their real personality. But not necessarily. Mm-hmm. There's like this distinct difference between office Steve and domestic Steve or outside of office Steve. And so this show basically is, you know, take, taking to an extreme. The show is saying, well, what if people only had memories of their office life while they were in the office? And they only had memories of their outside life when they were not in the office. So complete severing of the two different halves of the personality. It's it, it. I really took that took away from it a lot of that uh, idea that we say. You know, companies will say, "Hey, this is a great place for work life balance," and, and it's it's hard to divorce yourself of the two worlds, right? Like the 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 idea of there to be true work life balance would be work is work. Life is life, mm-hmm. but we do carry over, right? And like, it's almost impossible to not be stressed out or to be stressed out at work and not have that carry over to when you get home and vice versa. So would you be attracted at all to a severance procedure if offered? Um, no. No? Like, is it because of the show? Because I think that if I hadn't seen the show, I, would, I might think like, boy, it sure would be nice to just leave all of my work at the office and be fully present at home when I'm home. Yeah, well that and that's the that's the allure, right? But there's the idea that it's like that's it, you're not just forgetting the work part of it. You're forgetting every other aspect of it, right? Every mm. you know, and so part of the reason why and that's the I you know, and I think that's why this show does such a good job of taking it to that extreme is that for you to be 
good at your job, you know, you obviously have to have a certain amount of intelligence and training and all the things that goes along with that. But there should be something about your other ex- experiences that you've had that you can leverage, right? Like, I mean, I, I think we see that a lot where you leverage experiences that you may have had in the workplace and you can maybe relate that to other power dynamics you may um, encounter outside of work. But if you don't have any recollection that you, that that's who you are uh, outside of uh, work or outside of home, it, it's you're, you're missing something, right? So this shows a little bit of a horror thriller, psychological sort of cautionary tale or something. But I'll be honest, if I had not seen this show, I think I would be really attracted to a severance scenario. I feel like it would just be really nice to only care about office politics in the office. That To me, that sounds highly desirable. Yeah, I guess it's, but yeah, I mean, you're just not having that accountability. It's a lot of time out of your day that you don't have any recollection of, right? I mean, the idea of, of not having work stress mm-hmm. is one thing, but to take, you know, a third or more of your day and wipe it out. Sure. <laughs> well, seems... and that's, I think that that's, that what you want to do is element, quit your right? job. You want to quit your job. That's, that's what I want. You do. want someone to implant a chip that makes you rich. <laughs> no. See, I think that would be really or, attractive. <laughs> or a chip that gets implanted that makes you content with being homeless. <laughs> if I could have that chip. Oh, baby. Yeah, I want a chip that makes me just a little less aware. <laughs> just maybe a little dumber. See, I think I would have been really attracted to that idea before the show because one of the things that the show brings out when you realize how messed up it actually would be is that what you're doing is you're creating a version of yourself that can never leave the office. Mm-hmm. Right, so you are. What you're doing is you're enslaving yourself. Yeah, so it's that, and that is an interesting way to look at it, you know. Because I mean, could you imagine, like, the in order for you to wake up every day, never going to work, a part of you has to wake up every day at work <laughs> and never sleep. Because a version of you that never sleeps. Yeah, they're rested, right? So they're rested. It's like they live. That's in That's horrible. Because half the, I, I mean. To always be rested, never have an excuse to just lay down? To walk into an elevator and then turn around and go back into that same <laughs> body. Jeez. I mean, it really is It really is turning the workplace into this weird psychological rat maze. Yeah, because it's a turnstile, right? You go in, you go yep. out, back to work. In and go out, that's back right. to work. And so that's the thing that's interesting, too, about the way it's done. I mean, I, obviously, there's there's something that happens when they go through the elevator that gives them the ability to know that it's a new day, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, as opposed to just go in with a, go in fine, come out with a headache because you're hungover. Like, that's wild, right? That's a bit wild. You go in just feeling gross and then immediately feel like you're, you've just showered. Yeah. Or that you've just put on cologne or whatever it is. Are you a cologne guy? No. no, nor am I. My son's a big cologne guy. Eh, about that age. Were you ever a cologne guy? No, I was. We never. all had. We all had a bottle of Dracar Noir somewhere. I mean, look, the closest I ever came to it was like my dad had a fifty-year-old bottle of Old Spice. Mm. <laughs> you know, every now and again I'd sniff it, but there's no way I'm putting that stuff on. 
Yeah, my dad had like cologne bottles that were like, I don't know if they actually were what the cologne came in or if they if there was such a thing as like you could buy a different bottle to put the cologne in that was like more decorative. Because I remember he had like, it looked like a clear old timey car. Yeah. And there was some sort of nondescript cologne and there was like no, yeah, no label on it. Yeah, they used to do that with cologne bottles a lot. It would actually, you would want to shape the glass bottle as something masculine, right? Yeah. It's like a ship <laughs> or a car or something. So it looks like you're actually like taking a hammer to your head, but you're really just sprinkling it out of the, it was, yeah. the spout that's in the... <laughs> So that, that the whole part of that whole part of your life is gone. It's like you never that part of your life never takes a shower. That part of your life never puts on cologne. That part of your life never has a cigarette or a sip of alcohol or watches television. It never leaves the office. It own that you're creating a creature out of your own personality that is enslaved within the office. That's that's the premise of the show, right? Yeah. And it creates it's, it's like a scenario. it's cloning without cloning. Sure, yeah, there you go. And it creates a scenario where the they call these sort of personalities innies and outies, mm-hmm. and the outies have all of the power, right? So I'm about to get into the spoilers here. Okay, so go watch Severance. It's on <laughs> Apple TV. It's nine episodes for the first season. Beauty of it is you can pause this podcast. Yeah, go watch it. Pick it up right where you left off, and it's sort of like you're any at the office. And you know, slap on a little cologne before you come back. Yeah, I, yeah. I, again, if you can get the Drakkar. <laughs> so, one of the things that I found really funny and fascinating about this show is the extent to which the office personas, the the quote unquote innies, have developed this f- fantastic imaginary view of their real selves. Like, for instance, the Dylan characters, you know, looking at his lats and thinking, you know, my Audi must be involved with muscle shows for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That character is just worth the whole show for me. I I love Yeah, he's he's amazing. And so you can just get this sense that they all, they, they have no idea who they are on the outside world. They have no idea what the outside world is actually like. They all have these weird, unknowing fantasies of what they might be like on the outside. Yeah, it's, world. it's childlike. Yeah, the only purpose of these fantasies is just to give give a hint of an imaginary life, where you're not actually this office slave, right? Yeah, and to, and to give purpose to it, right? Because, um, I mean, there's something really fascinating too about being a creation of the god that is you. Yeah. The idea of a higher being or a higher calling is is truly accessible to some degree, but it's they can't they can't know it. But at the same time, they they know it's them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and they can, they can only assume they don't know if the Audi what it knows about what it, what the job is and all of that. Right? I mean, that's your Audi could very well and go. Oh, I signed up for this. Great. I'm going to uh, put my myself in that position. Right. I mean, there's so many mysteries about why your Audi, who your Audi is, what they're about, what was their intent, why you know why are you here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's a it's a real you know uh, spiritual journey to some degree, but it's it's but they're so childlike because they don't have any other frame of reference to balance anything off of. 
You can't speak. Your God is you, and you can't even talk to the people around you about yeah. what their experience with God is because it's also them, and they don't know it. Right, and you don't know whether it's a benevolent God. You know, there's one character, Heli's character, and she realizes that her Audi, her her fully realized self with a personal history, that person is sadistic. That person does not care about her experience in the office at all. In fact, she says, you are not a person, right? Right. So it's possible that, that the person that put you in this office, which is you, right? The person that put you in the office does not have your best interests in mind. And no one to blame but yourself. No one to blame but yourself. And, of course, I think I think Helly might be the main character of this show. I think that the Mark character sort of is disguised as the main character because he's got the most screen time and you know he's got the the tragic backstory and whatnot. And he's the in the title sequence. He's in the title sequence, and yet the very first scene of the show is Helly on the table, right? Right. And the first line is the the voice over the intercom saying, "Who are you?" Right. So that's a kind of question that kind of begs for a meta conversation. And then on top of that. That's the character that ends up having the most pronounced duality between the innie and the outie in the show. Uh, and, of course, the big reveal at the you know season finale is that Heli is something of a... You know, it's her family business. I want to talk a little bit about Petey. Let's talk about Petey. The Petey character is really... Imp- Petey character doesn't stay around for very long, but the Petey character is really important for this plot because he's something of a canary in the coal mine early on. Like, you know, here's what could happen to you, Mark, right? You could, you could be free. And then of course he's also a cautionary tale because, you know, he, he, he can't really reintegrate his memories and he ends up dying. There's that part of his narrative. But at one point, Petey tells Mark that there's a department that he found in Lumen where the employees never leave. Like, they're down there now. Like, they don't have an outside life. They are fully slaves within the bowels of Lumen, right? But it's something that does not get wrapped up at the end of Season 1. That uh, is is a really uh, interesting thing that's happened, right? Like they take you on this journey with Petey and there's maps and there's, uh, there's this new problem to solve. Right. Uh-huh. And, and then, and then you kind of leave it for a bit. Right. You almost forget that, that Petey had this mission. And Mark kind of takes on the mission of mapping the place, but, you almost forget that there's actually, like, honest-to-goodness slaves somewhere in the building, right? Right. And, all right, so I think that that's connected, and try this on for size, but I think it's connected in some way to the story about Mark's wife. So major spoilers alert at this point. But Mark, for the first, what, eight episodes, thinks that his wife is dead. Right. And then we and that's, re- and that's why he got severed. That's why he wanted to be severed in the first place. And then he, he realizes a third less of his day to think about her. Exactly. And he realizes that eventually 
well, eventually he realizes that one of his coworkers at Lumen was actually is actually his wife, and I guess she her death was faked. I guess that's what I'm supposed to assume. Right. Is that Gemma's death was faked. And then she walks down this dark hallway and we never see her again. And I wonder if like the only way that you could keep people in a basement and them having them having no outside lives is to fake someone's death, I think. Yeah, because you can't risk her being out and running into him. So I think that those two plot lines have to be connected. I think when Pete says, I found a room where they don't let the employees leave. I think that that's probably what ended up happening to Mark's wife. Right. Because there's no version of her in the outside world, right? Right. And you couldn't have it that way. Because yeah. in order for, you know, in order for any of this to work, you know, he can't run into his, I mean, it just, just can't. So, so the question becomes who and why orchestrated that, right? Sure. You know, so that's the, the question is, is, is this, did Gemma fake her death so she could do this thing? Is, was that being orchestrated by, like, so it just, it begins the, like, now it's like even more, you knew Lumen was large and you knew Lumen was, um, there's something more to it than just, you know, collecting numbers and, uh, you know, putting up paintings and everything. But what is it, right? And that's, and how, and how, how vast is their control? Because, I mean, it sure looks to me like there is no real outside world. So this show is interesting in that it gave us a season finale, and I think it was a really good season finale. But it wasn't a season finale that wrapped up much. I mean, there's no, a lot of there's a lot of things that are still really mysterious. Like, why are the numbers scary? Right, their whole job is to round up these numbers on a screen, and you'll just feel it, and you just feel it. <laughs> they feel scary. Um, why is that? Like, that doesn't get answered. Nothing about Lumen gets an- answered. Like, what is the end game for this corporation? Like, what do they really? Yeah, like want? we understand. We all we really know that Lumen does for sure is create the Severance Project. Right, but there's but there's no but we, but we don't know why, and we don't know what it means. We don't know why they are so interested in Mark, like interested enough so that his boss is actually also his next door neighbor who's spying on him. Right, and I mean obviously the work that they're doing with Gemma that they they're letting him and Gemma interact, and uh-huh. uh, Mrs. Cobell goes and gets artifacts from yeah so that they can have them together. You almost wonder, is this beta phase severance, right? Like right. they want to test, test the boundaries of, of what can they be triggered to remember things. That's what real? I was wondering too, because there is that whole pregnancy element of the show. Right. I initially thought, okay, they're trying it maybe on a few pregnant women so that they will forget their childbirth experience. Mm-hmm. But then I thought... Why is Mrs. Cobell or Mrs. Zelvig or whatever her Selwig, name is? Selwig, yeah. Yeah, Selwig. Why is she pretending to be a doula or a lactation consultant or who, whatever so that she can go to Mark's sister's house and either spy on Mark or spy on her? So, that again, season finale did not answer any of that. Right. In fact, it just it opened up more questions, which I think is part of the reason why I think it was such a, an effective 
season finale and why it it, uh, it, it was such a high anxiety uh, huh. themed. I mean, just constantly yeah. like, ugh, just like, I mean, I was, I don't think I was, I was just, I wouldn't shut up the whole time. I'm like, but, uh, but come on. <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and it was, it was an incredible finale, a great ride. Like it, it just felt great. Right. Like it, I think there was uh-huh. something about that, that emotional response and then to just have it, I mean, it ends almost perfect in my opinion, but now it's like, it's so funny. Like you mentioned, okay, we've got the PD um, dynamic, you know, that, that story, you've got the whole, well, what about the slaves? What about all these other things? And then yeah. you've also now got, well, what's going to happen to them all now? Well, I was wondering that too. I was thinking, okay, so in order for this to be a, a full season two, you're going to have to get them back down in the office again somehow. And I'm wondering how they're going to do that. Like, given what they all know about their lives outside, how are you going to get me to believe that these all these folks are willing to continue, you know, the lasso numbers? Can you reset them? Can, Can you, you reset? reset the that's a good question. Can you reset them? I think that one so thing. You, so is season two, season one again. <laughs> I was degree. wondering if they would do that. I, w- I was wondering if they would do season two entirely from Helly's perspective and get more of her backstory, so that season one and season two ended at about the same place. Right. That's an interesting point. Like where season two focuses more on Audis. Yeah, and- maybe. And leads up to that moment. Um, that well, would be that would be a way to work it. I think. I here's the other thing that I was I was noticing. So like just the four office mates. So we know why Mark's there, right? Mark is there because he's in grief and he wants to experience less grief. So he's decided to sever his mind, right? And we know why Helly's there. She's like there to like be a good company daughter. Yeah, she's she's buying. She she appears to have, uh, you know, drank the Kool Aid and is willing to 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 do the ultimate to show yeah. that this is this is great stuff. Exactly. And then, I I'm kind of guessing on this one, but John Turturro's character Irving, mm-hmm. he's kind of presents as like this tortured artist toward the end. And you mm, get I have this... some thoughts on that. Yeah, tell me tell me what you think about him. Well, so this is, and this is really uh, mostly probably a Heather take, uh, but you know they go through the different modes when they engage overtime, and there's yeah. there's a ton of different modes, right? Um, and uh, one of the modes is goldfish, sure. Okay. And so so Heather thinks that the Totoro character is in goldfish mode as an Audi. Oh, interesting. So he's just no he's just doing the same thing over and over again, over and over again, over and over again. And he's no no real memory of anything. He puts going on Ace on. of Spades and he paints with the same palette. He paints the same thing over and over yeah, again. Yeah. And then and then he when he gets uh unsevered and um shows up uh you know, in his house, he's he finds things like um he finds that like he was onto something. He's right. got some some clues, so it's almost as if they like he got caught by Lumen doing something outside of it, and so they have an, the ability to 
to tweak his Audi, right? Like, cause the chip's uh-huh. in there. So, uh-huh. so, so the, and if you look, I mean, that whole world is surreal, right? I mean, the Rickon, every Rickon party, the <laughs> dinner party that he's, yes. that, that, that Mark is initially in, it's like, it's, it's in many ways creepier than the office. <laughs> and there's, everything is just a touch surreal. And like the food party with no food or whatever. Yeah. And so it, it kind of, it gives this, feeling that like well maybe this maybe this town is lumen right like that because uh, mm-hmm. i mean to irving goes to goes home and there's like no light on in any other building except his right. and and so there's there's appears to be this element of like okay there's something else going on is this is this entire like same thing with mark's neighborhood right i mean it's it feels pretty insulated. It feels like maybe. Well, on top of that, you can some of the people that you see on TV are actually characters that you meet in the office, right? So how how big is this bubble actually? Right. That's an interesting thing. So I guess my question is, I was assuming that the reason that Irving gets severed in the first place is that he wants his Audi to just focus on his creative life. And he doesn't want to have this worker be part of his life in his memory while he's trying to create art. But of course, I'm supplying all of that. You know, we don't really know why he's there. Right. Yeah. See, I get the sense that, like, he seems as if he's turned off or he's on mm. He's in a different okay. mode. And, um, and then him finding all of that information in his house, which is, is an interesting thing, too, because you're like, okay, well, if that is the case. Then why would they leave all that? But he has a hidden, I guess, right? He has a hidden, but but it's it's. Then you wonder how much of it is intentional. Is Lumen really? So these are the. By the way, these are the um, the different modes and the manage modes. There's Beehive, Branch Transfer, Clean Slate, Elephant, Freeze Frame, Glasgow, Goldfish, Lullaby, Open House, and Overtime. Oh, those are the different modes that people can be in right so so like looking at those you might be like okay well clean slate makes sense right i mean just wipe it all out sure okay um freeze frame that could be also maybe what he's experiencing uh elephant you never forget right that would be the other thing right okay got it um lullaby Uh something that pacifies you Uh uh-huh or just sleep that's just your sleep mode right Okay. Yeah, so that's another thing to consider. It's like, are they always? Is there no such thing as work-life balance with Lumen? Are yeah, you? Does always... the chip in your brain govern every part of your life? Right. Because if you can, if you can activate it as an, if it can be activated as an Audi, then you have no agency, right? The work has all the control. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, the, so like, it's funny because like when I first was looking at this, and on the surface, it does feel like it's like, okay, this is a critique of you know maybe Western cultures, work-life balance, and the mm-hmm. the myth, the mythology behind that, right? Because I would make the argument that we're always achieve, trying to achieve work-life balance, but as long as you have a work and you know an outside life that. You're always going to be in that balancing act. You're always going to be trying to to find it because it's it's impossible to completely sever, you know, the stress of work entirely. And or and then this, you know, sometimes going to work seems like it's an escape because it's like, all right, I'm just going to go do my job because my home life's a mess or whatever. But you can't. It's still there, right? right. Um, 
so that's kind of what I, I think the maybe the initial like the the high level pitch meeting goes right. But then as it gets further and further, you realize oh there's there's something way deeper going on in this in this show. I want to talk about the Rickon element. Okay. So Rickon has written he, well. He's kind of presents as this total sophomoric fool, right? He thinks he's he's got a bunch of fortune cookie wisdom, and he's kind of spliced it together for this stupid self help book, right? Mm-hmm. And he but he presents as a totally foolish character. This has got this element has kind of got me vexed. So I need your help with this. All right, all right. He's a total fool. He thinks he's changing the world with his fortune cookie wisdom. We actually get to hear parts of the book read from time to time. So there's like no question that this book is ridiculous. You know, it's just complete drivel. Right. But then the innies get a hold of the book. Who other They otherwise present as pretty smart, these innies, right? right? But their lives are totally transformed by this absurd, ridiculous book. What am I supposed to make of this? Well, it feels like a critique, right? I mean, it's it's a critique. It feels some sort of like a critique of almost any religious documentation or an expanding on a religious documentation, right? Like almost any... I don't even think it goes to like to like to cult specifically, but it's just the idea that if left to our own devices, looking for, you know looking for purpose all you have to do is find like the, the first thing you find is going to be the most uh convincing to some degree right i mean sure. okay. their their eyes are being opened to something because they have no no access to anything outside so this is one it's a clue to the outside so it's yeah. almost like you find you've almost stumbled upon an oracle right and so if it comes off as even you, you may not even be able to fully see and realize that it's coming off as kind of intellectual gibberish because mm-hmm. because it's an unknown to you. It's already speaking about things that are unknown, so you you may be willing to give it a certain amount of reverence just by virtue of the fact that it exists beyond your world. So if the only book that you have is like the Lumen Employee Handbook, right? Mm-hmm. And that sort of functions as your Bible. That if you stumble upon some kind of second-rate self-help bullshit book... It's going to seem like a mystical experience to you. Sure. I mean, on top of that, you're only like, what? You're only like, what? Like 80 hours old. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so and so let's let's even take that further. Let's take that critique further and just say, let's look at the Bible. And you say, well, I don't know anything about this cultural frame of reference. You know, I, I'm reading things about floods. I'm reading things about angels. I'm reading things about... Um, you know, uh, mildew priests. I'm I'm reading all kinds of things that are like no cultural frame of reference, but because I've you know it, it's been assigned yeah. some you know a, a, an authority, a spiritual authority, you will kind of overlook some of that, right? And you're not going to maybe analyze that part so much because you're looking at uh, maybe a bigger picture and what does this speak to me? What is this telling me, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think we see that when Mark and Rick and have or any Mark has an interaction with Rickon um, right. that runs contrary to what their relationship prior to that would have would have indicated, where he's like, this is life-changing, this has opened my eyes, and it's like, of course it has. But regular Mark is like, this is insane. <laughs> this is just, yeah, it's this ridiculous. is garbage. It's but, so, garbage. 
So it's it's just such, to me that's such a wonderful uh, glimpse too into who we are and what happens when you when you limit experience, right? So like this person has essentially been hypnotized back to sort of a, uh, a more infantile state where things like this. The implication being that all of these people are susceptible to this type of, you know, maybe manipulation if they didn't have other things in their life that would demonstrate that this was, you know, a red flag. Sure. Yeah. It's a little and bit. They also don't have the skepticism, right? Because yeah. they, they want to believe they want to believe that there's purpose. They want to they, they are. And they're so curious. They live in such a bubble that the uh-huh. idea and it, you know, a little more simplistic. And there's maybe not as much uh, pursuit of gray area and nuance to, to any whether it's religion or anything else. Do you think that this is an intentional allegory? Because there are a number of religious themes on this show. Um, I, I mean, it wouldn't be the first sci-fi to to try sure. on allegory, right? Yeah, and so uh, it's an interesting one because that's and I think that's one of the questions that I think comes up a lot when you're when you're watching sci-fi. I think in particular is like how much of this is an intentional specific allegory versus mm-hmm. uh, the ability to be allegorical on many levels uh, because there's so many parts of our lives that kind of have. Uh, overlapping themes and mm-hmm. approaches that that is just sort of an inevitability if you if you're going to cover one thing like if you're going to try to critique let's say you're trying to just critique technology and the growth of technology um there's you, you could make this as an allegory that says well okay as technology advances we become dumber or we become simpler to sure. some degree right <laughs> okay. and so so you could see that with yeah. this like okay well half of the time this person's awake they're dumber right i mean there's something to be said for well, that. Well, and being, in this case, being dumber makes them easier to manipulate, but also better worker bees, right? So they're being manipulated uh, yeah. by the institution. The institution here could represent any kind of you know social force, but it happens to work pretty well for religion. And then, of course, they have this, this book that they can quote ver- you know chapter and verse and debate about, right? Right. And then, you, of course, you have this weird break room where the, there, it's almost a confessional experience, but really is a brainwashing. Right. Uh, and then there's like this almost silent godhead, right? Like the board has, I think the board says like one word over the whole episode. Right. And so it's almost like this whole thing is being governed by this overlord that never speaks. So anyway, I don't know if it's an allegory, but... It certainly can be read that way. Yeah, and it certainly feels like there may be, like, there's some, it feels like maybe some Scientology. Sure, uh, maybe. Elements, right? You know, um, and again, when you go to this, there's this, there's this figure that's this, but he's a real person, and he has, he sort of carved this path and certain created this enlightenment, and, and we all owe him some sort of gratitude, and and yeah. it's his vision that brings you to this spot. And, uh, and so in a way, like you go and you get severed from the rest of the world and now you're, you've been tied into this other, uh, existence. And again, you talked about the easy to manipulate. And and then, so now you get Rickon's book and it's, and it's just saying something different. Right. And sometimes, yeah, it doesn't have to be profound. All it has to do is kind of subvert the standard line. Right, and and all you have is this, like you said, the company handbook, and it's speaking to this sort of spiritualized sense of 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 the founder too. So it's not just nuts and bolts, right? There is so you ha- kind of have two two ideologies now 
to compare to. Sure. And and on some on some level, the the just the idea that something's new might be might that might be all that it takes to be attractive, right? And especially if you're seeking for something else, and you and, and not only that, it, it'd be one thing if they had no idea that there was uh, an Audi version of themselves. You know, like if they just thought this was it. Yeah, yeah. But um, but since they're aware that they that they live in a different existence, that that need to know more about it and to know why and, and to find purpose is much more present because if you, cause you're, cause you do have a little bit of free will in this, right? I mean, you do have some agency in what you know. Well, you, they've, they've been convinced that they actually do have agency, right? Like right. You have agency. Every time you come back here, it's because you chose to come back here. It's, it's a lie because these guys can't, I almost went a little walk in there. It's a lie. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. Little Christopher Walken. If you want to do the rest of this podcast as Christopher Walken, that'd be fine by me. Perfect. All right. Sounds great. So the other part of this that I don't that has not been wrapped up is Dylan's character. Right? We have no idea why he's there. Right. Yeah. We know he's got kids. We know he's got kids, and that really sort of is a hinge for his character because he's the character where he's almost happy to be a button pusher down in this basement because the sky's the limit for his outer life, right? He mm-hmm. can imagine he's, you know, a champion bodybuilder or whatever. And it's all very superficial, right? You know, he the, the way that he imagines his Audi is very superficial. But when he learns that he actually has a family, it completely explodes any fantasies that he's got. And it also creates a situation where it's like, this is not enough. This job is absolutely not enough for me. And he pushes it. He's the one who's going. He risks everything. Yeah, that's right. Oddly enough, he risks everything, not even necessarily to go out into his life, but so that the others can do it. Um, and maybe that will get him free, right? Like, it's an interesting thing that he does, right? That, that he becomes this this central sacrificial figure on his own. Like, mm-hmm. he's all about it. And <laughs> really, Irving seems like he's got the wingspan <laughs> to better pull this off. <laughs> right. Yeah, But I do think that what but Dylan Dylan's has... Dylan's got the gumption. Yes. What Dylan has is he almost wants to burn it down more than anyone else. Right. It's almost like, yes, I absolutely want to know who I am on the outside now. But more than that, I want these tormentors down here to suffer. Right. I'm like you said, he's got the gumption. He's going to be the one. So he wants to push the buttons to do it. Lots of breakfast. Lots of breakfast. Waffle parties. There's eggs. That's true. The eggs are highly coveted. (laughs) They're coveted as fuck. (laughs) <laughs> dude that waffle party was not what i thought it was. okay let's talk about the waffle party <laughs> what is what is i was not expecting it uh has that ever been part of your office experience well it's funny like because i it really felt like you know prior to the actual realization of the waffle party it was a really good send-up on, on how little it takes to get people at work motivated <laughs> Right. And more importantly, distracted, right? Like if they said, right. like, I don't know how many times I've been sitting there working and someone comes, oh, there's bagels in the break room. And your first reaction is like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> and 
I mean, it's crazy how like, and it's always food, and it's usually cheap food. You know, uh, that's yeah. the way it usually works. And <laughs> and it's just, it's like, hey, we don't have to work right now, and we get food. It's like, it's it really does feel like you've taken a step back as as a civilized person. Uh, and so I think, so I, to it, to me, I always thought that that throughout the show that that was kind of like sending that kind of send it. It was like a send up, right? Like it's funny. But then when you when you experience the waffle party and it becomes this like uh eyes wide shut meets Madagascar <laughs> kind of experience. Like, like oh the waffles the waffles like the least of this. <laughs> not for me, man. A really good waffle. Yeah, see I'm just not a big syrup guy. Uh huh. I see. <laughs> so I'm probably just more there for the show. The whole this whole situation is very um like angels and demons situation. Mm-hmm. You've almost got this psychotic mother at the helm, the the Mrs. Cobell character. Right. You know, she's all, she's like abusive, but then she can be soft. It it's almost creating this situation where is like the the workers are these abused children. And then you've got the father, the the Mr. Milchick character, who's like, "Yeah, we got to carve some time out for Milchick." He <laughs> he kind of presents as this guy who's uh, he's the heavy, like he's gonna he's gonna be the disciplinarian, but he always does it with a smile. Yeah, and it's the whole thing is sort of this family dynamic where the rewards are going to band aid the wounds that we created. That's the idea. Right. It's totally messed up. Anyway, you want to talk the waffle party, or you want to talk about Milchik? Well, Milchik is is one of these like just is so sufficiently creepy. Yeah, and I don't think he's ever at his creepiest uh, than when he's dancing. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost it's almost like he's he's a menacing Lionel Richie. It, yeah, it's crazy because he's it's so what he what he does as an actor, the choices he makes in those sequences, it's like he's so earnest about the dancing, but because we know like what's going on or at least t- to the degree that we know that there's something else going on. Mm-hmm. His his dancing it poses such a problem for me. <laughs> like it is, <laughs> it is some of the most unsettling, and they do such a great job. I mean, ben, and hats off to Ben Stiller. I know he doesn't direct all of them, but like he's really one of the creative forces behind this. And this is, this is not what I would usually expect from a Ben Stiller joint. Yeah, <laughs> this is exactly what the kind of thing I'm talking about. Because, all right, so the wound in this case is that you've. You've created this office environment that's very low sensory stimulus. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all white. You've got this massive room and you've got these people huddled in the center with like a little cubicle kind of situation. And the only color in the room is this dark green. Every, everything else is really white. Right. And so Milchik can come in and be like, okay, so you guys have been living in this warehouse your entire lives. All I need to do is change the lighting slightly, and this whole place is a party, right? Yeah. 
And of course, they they're not like going to clubs on the outside. They don't know that Milchik isn't like a solid gold dancer. He he can just tw- yeah. twist it with a menacing grin on his face, and you think that you're actually at a party. Yeah. Well, and they don't know, right? But it does feel like you said, like that abusive concept where it's just like, hey, hey, hey look what I got. You guys want to watch this movie? I know mom doesn't let you watch this movie, and suddenly you're like, oh, okay, he's on our side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, the, the idea that too that like there's a power that Milchek has, right? Like he has the power to change the environment. Yeah, he has the uh, he he comes with perks, um, but he also man, he'll break you down. I mean, that's an interesting element too of we were discussing with with the Heli uh, reveal when we find out what her role is, or at least get a, a glimpse into what her role is from a Lumen perspective. Is that like okay? You know, Heather was saying, well, that probably explains why. You know, Miss Cobell was under so much uh, scrutiny for, you know, hiding the suicide attempt by Heli um, because of what a crucial person she is to the organization. Right. But, it, but it's interesting that they still were like, OK, with the I mean, as as, as important as she is, they have n- no respect for her as an inning. Sure. You know, I mean, they, they will go through every effort to break her. And then maybe that's something that was discussed by Heli initially, like, yeah, do whatever you take. Don't. Don't give me any special treatment. That's that's adds to the sort of the mystery of this whole thing is when you you see her being just broken down, very much reminding me of uh, the the auditing that we you would see in a Scientologist uh, um, setting, right? Like the uh, we saw that in the movie The Master, where they go through the audit process and really are breaking the person down. This is obviously just through repetition. Yeah, these people are psychologically being broken down for sure. So there's this wing in the Lumen office space that's dedicated to this, I don't know, very manicured history of Lumen, right? They call mm-hmm. it the uh, the perpetuity wing. Right. So the perpetuity wing is almost like a temple. Like you go in, you're going to see the luminaries from the past. You know, there's a, a model of the house for... for you know, Mr. Egan. Right. Well, in fact, there's one episode where they go for a little tour. And at one point he said, Irving tells Helly, he says, look, it's, it's really disorienting not to have a personal history. You know, it's not natural, but if you come here, you'll find a history. And this, this can be your history. This, this museum or this, what I'm reading as a temple, this is now your history. You've eliminated any personal history that you've experienced, any childhood. So you are just a Lumen employee. That's your whole history now. And to me, this is interesting because Mark's former profession, he was actually a history professor. Right. right? So you've got this history professor who's chosen to work in a space that ha- where he has no personal history. And so you've got this ver- this this place that's meant to break them down and make them cogs in this machine. But that's exactly where they host the waffle party. They host the waffle party in this sort of really museum-esque sacred space. I, I don't know what yeah, to make and, of that. And you part get of and it's and it's only one person and he gets to sit in there and feel like cure, right? I guess so. And maybe it's sort of like, okay, this is how the elites of society live. Like, they go into these, you know, weird cult-like spaces and get to have these psychosexual kind of experiences that other normal people don't have. 
I don't know. It's it's wild. I'm not sure how to read this part of it. Yeah, and that's a, it's wild that they introduce that like you're already in the middle of everything else, and then that's how that's how we get introduced to, you know, the big, the big finale, or as we're leading because that's the penultimate episode, right? Is yeah, where we get introduced to the waffle party that has been teased throughout, and then you see it, you're like, oh, I did not, I did not realize what, what they're so excited about, and uh, and it's and then you're just like, well, those are Lumen employees, I assume. You know, yeah, where are these yeah. people coming from? Like, what what is the deal with these these provocative dancers with the animal heads? I guess that's what that's what swing shift is at uh, at Lumen. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then you've got the goats room. Like, what's going on with the oh, goats yeah, room? Exactly. Yeah, sure, goats, <laughs> baby goats, baby goats. You've an entire room. Of baby goats with no explanation, right? Right. But here's the thing about this show is I feel like everything that I've learned, I went I went back and watched the first couple episodes after the season finale. Really rewarding on a rewatch because there's a lot of little details that pay off. That you everything feels intentional. Everything feels intentional, and because it feels intentional, I feel like I have faith in the showrunners that they actually will give me an explanation for things like why are the numbers scary and why are these goats in this room or what what's so you, the deal oh hey, to tie bow on the uh, the religious themes part of it the the title of the first episode was the good news about hell oh i didn't catch that and wow. so good news of course is gospel right gospel yeah and then of course hell is you got the hell theme there and Helly. Helly, of course. Anything else you want to talk about? I'm I'm really looking forward to season two of this. I am too, and I am gonna do a rewatch for sure. We were contemplating watching like again, like you did, like right after. And I was probably gonna do it maybe closer to when the season comes back out, but Yeah, that makes sense. To, I mean that way it's a little a little more fresh, right? Because I think like we just talked about, like it'd probably be easy to forget all about Petey. Right. I mean that was to and that's what's interesting about the show is that like for so long it felt like that I mean it, it was going to be like a major element of the show was the dynamic of of Petey knowing and then Mark only knowing half the time um and it's so it's it's amazing what it was willing to do to sort of like just redivert you you know it, it, almost at every turn like well, that's and that's why I think that the PD narrative gets picked up with the Gemma narrative toward the end. Mm-hmm. I think that they've got to tell us in season two, they've got to tell us what happened to Gemma. Like, where is she now? And why, what, what was the, what, why fake her death? Like, what is the end game here for Lumen? Right. Like, it's it's you know it's it's nice just to have a, an evil institution you can you can do a lot with that, but I think it for a show like this it's at some point we need to have some kind of reveal about why this massive institution is so interested in Mark and Mark's significant others. Right, they're all trying to get to Rickon. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be the big reveal right that rickon will be he's really the head of lumen and this is all his machinations and in the end there's going to be a major battle and rickon will run ahead 
forget to zigzag, <laughs> get shot in the back. That's right. <laughs> Classic Rickon. Next week, Steve and I will return to our usual format for Cocoons of Horror. Next week, we will cover The Fly. That's the 1986 horror sci-fi flick with Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. And of course, we are a fledgling podcast. We would covet any Apple iTunes reviews. We would appreciate any kind words you might share to help promote this podcast. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works, and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>